What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Alexis Xavier Rivas is the co-founder and CEO at Cover, a company focused on using technology to build beautiful, affordable housing that everyone would aspire to own. In this conversation, we discuss housing, technology, first principles thinking, hiring, architecture, backyard homes, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Alexis, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is OKCoin. If you haven't started building your crypto portfolio on OKCoin, there's no better time. They're one of the fastest growing global exchanges around, and they have some promotions happening right now to help even more people be part of the future of finance. If you have an account already, you can split $100 in Bitcoin with a friend when you invite them to sign up for OKCoin if they buy $100 of crypto in the first month. The more friends who sign up and buy, the more Bitcoin you get. And I always recommend dollar cost averaging as a way for investors to have more control over their average price when building any sort of investment portfolio. Now you can automate dollar cost averaging with completely fee-free daily, weekly, or monthly recurring buys on OKCoin until November 1st. That's right. There are no fees at all on all purchases through that recurring buys product until the holidays. Get started on the web or on their brand new, super easy to use app at okcoin.com slash pomp. Again, okcoin.com slash pomp. Next up is LMAX Digital, the number one institutional crypto exchange. They offer clients the deepest pool of crypto liquidity on the planet, underscored by 100% uptime track record through volatility spikes. They leverage LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology. LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutional crypto trading and custodial services. They feature a central limit order book streaming spot Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, all paired with the US dollar, euro, and yen. LMAX Digital, they're secure, they're liquid, and they're trusted. That's why they're the number one institutional crypto exchange. People have been sleeping on LMAX Digital, but when you see the numbers under the hood, it is impossible not to be bullish. Go learn more at lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Again, lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Go check them out and let me know what you think. Last but not least is Arculus. Cryptocurrencies offer boundless potential, but who will protect yours? Arculus is the crypto cold storage wallet that combines the world's strongest security protocols with an easy to manage app. Unlike other storage solutions that are less secure and more difficult to use, Arculus doesn't compromise security or usability. You can store, swap, and send your crypto all with a simple tap of your Arculus key card. And with no cables and no USB connections, you're insulated from the thousands of hackers online trying to get all the digital assets people store in the cloud. So if the only person with access to your crypto is you. Order the safer, simpler, smarter crypto cold storage solution at GetArculus.com today. GetArculus.com. Go check it out if you're looking for a crypto cold storage wallet that serves as the world's strongest security protocols with an easy-to-manage app. GetArculus.com. All right, let's get in this episode with Alexis. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I'm here with Alexis. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Pomp. All right, let's start with this housing problem. Obviously, I think a lot of people are waking up to the idea that the housing problem is really, really bad in America. 
how bad is it and what's driving the problem? Yeah, I mean, housing is super broken. I mean, we have like a shortage of 5 million homes uh, in the United States. It's growing every year. Um, And the problem looks like it's getting worse. And that's because there's a shortage of skilled construction labor. And and the labor population is aging in construction. Got it. So basically, we have people who want to build homes. They have to go get materials. And then they also have to get construction teams, human capital. Um, And in the short term, maybe there's problems around the cost of uh, lumber, whatever these products are. But that hasn't been kind of a long term uh, problem. That's that's more recent. The really the long term problem is that you've got this uh, cost of labor. And you're basically making the argument that there's two things. One is they're getting older who have these skill sets. And so they're becoming somewhat more scarce. And that's driving costs up. And as you drive up costs, it becomes harder to actually build a home for something that's affordable price. Yes. Exactly. And when you think about the construction industry in general, how much of this is like what I would consider like general labor? So somebody who is going to do uh, kind of rudimentary carpentry skills or lay bricks or or whatever versus uh, an electrician or something that people might say, hey, look, that needs more of an education, more of a kind of apprenticeship uh, type education in order to be able to actually do that live on a job site without anyone there to to kind of uh, look over you. Yeah, Conventional construction is is a lot of that skilled labor, right? Mm-hmm. It, even even a carpenter it takes years to get good enough to you know do a kitchen and it looks great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so most of the cost comes from that skilled labor, uh, and even the areas that are you know less require less training and education. Mm-hmm. There's still an apprenticeship type approach, right? Like laying foundations, formwork, uh, mixing concrete, all of that. Uh, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's not like you can, you know, watch a YouTube video and then go do it. <laughs> Absolutely. When we look at the housing problem, uh, there's construction. Walk me through what does that construction process look like? If we just want to build, let's just say that we're going to build a uh, two bedroom, two bath home. Uh, how much does that cost the consumer? And then what does that timeline look like from the, se- the day somebody says go to it's actually constructed, somebody can move in? Yeah, so with the conventional process, it's it's extremely fragmented. I mean, the first question that you have to ask is, what am I even allowed to build from a zoning standpoint? Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, you would either go yourself to the city, go start talking to people, um, spend hours just waiting in line, uh, and then you might get the same answer. You're probably going to get different answers if you go on two different days and talk to, talk to different people, right? So that's the first part of the problem. Or you can hire a zoning consultant or an architect to go do that research for you and spend thousands of dollars. And, and what you'll learn from that is, you know, how big can you build, where on your property can you build, and, and what can you build? You know, how, what's the maximum number of bedrooms, all these restrictions, right, height, all of those. And then from, from there, you, you go into the design process. And so conventionally, you do this design process, you know, if you can afford it with a good architect and an engineer, um, or you go straight, straight to the general contractor. But this is a, an iterative and expensive design process, especially if you go with an architect and an engineer, which is what you need to get, you know, the super, super nice, super high end kind of home. Um, it's an expensive process because you're going, you're going and you're doing iterations. And for each iteration, you're spending, you know, 200 bucks an hour. Uh, and so that adds up and that takes months. And then you submit the permits, you wait a few months to get your permits back. Uh, and then you work with a general contractor and that general contractor manages a army of subcontractors. These are the, the foundation the crew, the framers, the plumbers, the electrician, uh, you know, the kitchen subcontractors. 
and they are managing that whole team until until the project is done. The issue with that is that if one of those teams is delayed or they prioritize another customer over you, now the whole project timeline is completely screwed because everyone had allocated time for your project. Now they need to be pushed back because you know the the framers can't you know or the the painters can't start until the drywall's up, you know, and these dependencies. And so you have this timeline that that goes way, you know, takes way longer, much more expensive than you thought. And you know, the norm is that it's twice as expensive and it takes three times as long uh, <laughs> as what you expect. And it's actually tr- true, which is crazy. And when they do this, uh, you got to go through the zoning process. Then you've got to go through this architect. Uh, and is that because people want something that's original? Or is that because literally there isn't just like, hey, here's five plans, just pick one of the five and then run with it? Yeah, I mean, you, you could go to your general contractor for, for most buildings and just for most homes and just do the designs with them. Um, but usually it's because you want something that's tailored to your needs, but also each property is different, mm-hmm. right? You might have a 50 foot wide property, you might have a 30 foot wide property. And those two properties, you know, it's just, it's just not going to make sense to build the same home. Mm-hmm. And so once you decide, okay, this is the design that I want, let's say you went through an architect and you've got the engineer uh, and you say go in, let's say LA where, uh, where you all are, is that a six month process, uh, one year process, five year pro- Like how long does it take from the second somebody breaks ground uh, and they've got the zoning in place, they've got the architect plans, all, all that ready to go to the, somebody's actually moving into the home? So with with conventional construction, that's typically for for like a one off home. You're not yep. a professional developer. That's typically a one year to two year process from from when you break ground. Okay. And what is the average price? Do we think kind of across LA? Let's say two bedroom, two bath. Is that five hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, two million? Where, where do we kind of come in at? You think? So this is this is where it gets it gets tricky. Yep. Um, in L- in a city like LA, where where land is expensive, housing is expensive, often people put more into the finishes, mm-hmm. and so you are looking at you know, at least five hundred thousand, but more often you're looking at you know a million dollars for the construction of a new home. Okay, so that I would expect that in a place like LA. So let's yeah. just say a million dollars as a general directional. It's more expensive than other places in the country. Yep. Um, there's also a lot of challenges in terms of zoning. Everyone wants to do crazy stuff, and I'm assured that they're going crazy trying to prevent people from doing that stuff. Uh, but there's also like a very big homeless population. Uh, and is that in relationship because there's strict zoning and they won't allow for the building out of more uh, homes? So for example, in San Francisco, I think it is kind of more egregious in that one of the big things people complain about is they say, hey, they won't let us build up, meaning higher high rises. And also they won't allow us to build in certain areas. So what you get is uh, a net negative amount of homes being built compared to what is needed, right? So you're actually building less homes than you need just to keep up with regular population growth. And because you're actually lagging so far behind, there is this constant delta between, hey, we already have a homeless population. They don't have a home. We can't build affordable housing fast enough. And so we're actually falling further and further behind the problem, which doesn't seem to have an end in sight. Is is that similar in an LA type area? Yeah, it's it's the same core problem. I mean, the homelessness issue it's a, it's a it's a complex issue that's one big driver it's just housing is extremely expensive mm-hmm. right and and there's and it's it's not getting better right now yeah well inflation and other things don't help either yeah uh, but so probably only going to get worse let's talk about cover um i when i first met you uh was 
blown away with just like, hey, look, there's this problem. And most people are going to go solve that problem with what I would consider like an elementary view of, oh, we need to build more homes. Like, let's just go build more homes, right? And I'll build a construction company and it'll be amazing. You and the rest of your team have taken much more of what I would consider like a first principles thought process to what is the core problem that is limiting the production of more homes and how do we solve that? And so kind of talk through like, what is that original idea for cover and, and kind of how do you guys think about it today? Yeah, so, so 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 I come from an architecture background, right? And and I from I always wanted to build homes, mm -hmm. um, and I worked with my grandparents closely to build their home. Saw the process from their perspective, and it was exactly what I said earlier, which was you know it took twice as it cost twice as much as what they expected, and it took three times as long. And it was mm -hmm. shocking to me because they didn't want anything crazy. Mm -hmm. They just wanted a you know a nice home that was going to last long, was going to be well built. Um, and that it was, you know, thoughtfully designed. Mm -hmm. They didn't want anything crazy. And and then I also saw, so, so, you know, saw that problem, went and worked for architecture firms, see what was going on behind the scenes. And what I realized was, you know, it wasn't just, you know, they had a bad architect or they had a bad team. It was a structural problem with how the industry was set up. Okay. Right? It, and, and what that structural problem is, is it's fragmented. There's all the different parties involved, they're not working under one roof, they're not even working towards the same incentives, right? Mm -hmm. They're all charging hourly. Mm -hmm. And saw that problem and st started asking the question, you know, why aren't homes built like every other product in our lives? Mm -hmm. What like, do you mean by that? Built in a factory. Yep. Right? Like your clothing, your, your furniture, your electronics, right? It's all built in a factory your car. Um, and as a result of that, it's abundantly available. It's low cost. There's very tight quality control. And you know, why aren't homes built that way? That, that's kind of the question that went ran through my head. And so I started you know, Googling and learned about this industry called prefab. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, people are trying to do this. That sounds really cool. So I went and worked for a prefab company thinking that they had the solution to this problem. And what I learned was that while they were building homes inside of a factory, all they had done was taken the conventional home building process and replicated that same process inside of a factory. So they were still building, you know, with plumbers and electricians and uh, carpenters, uh, all using conventional tools and materials. They were just doing it in the factory rather than on site on the land, and they would bring those pieces there and then construct them. But ultimately, it didn't really solve the time, cost, and like efficiency standpoint. It was more so just, we're not gonna do it on site, we're gonna do it in a factory. So it appears like it happens faster, but not really. Yeah, it, it, it appears like it happens faster. There's some efficiency gains by having, you know, everyone working in the same company. It, it wasn't, you know, completely, uh, it, you know, it, but the efficiency gains were marginal. You're, you're mm -hmm. looking at like, you know, 10% more efficient than conventional construction, mm -hmm. um, which is good, but that's not enough. Mm -hmm. And so, so I started asking the question, you know, what would it look like if homes were actually designed from the start to be geared towards manufacturability from the start? Right, mm -hmm. to be geared towards the factory tooling, the machine, the process from the beginning. Because nobody had actually redesigned the physical home for that. Because mm -hmm. um, that, every product, you know, your car, um, it's the, the design of the car is so that it can be manufactured incredibly efficiently. Mm -hmm. And it's designed with that in mind from the start. That hadn't been done for homes. So that's kind of the, the, the core insight. Um, that, that, was the, that was the core insight. And at that point, I said, started looking at other companies, touring their factories, um, talking with people, learning about the space, and realized 
nobody had actually redesigned the home from the ground up. And so, so that's what we're doing, right? We're redesigning the entire home building process from the ground up to be geared towards manufacturability from the start. Um, and I think one of the big differences, and this is, this is where, yeah, w- one of the big differences is that unlike a car, unlike clothes or furniture, where it's the same product over and over again, because properties are different, because the sizes are different, homes have to have customization. Mm-hmm. And so then how do you do that customization at scale, right? That's, that's a hard problem. And when you think about this, uh, walk me through, okay, I buy a piece of land, I want to put a house there, uh, or I've got land in my backyard, I want to put some sort of structure there. Uh, I say to cover, hey, I would like to potentially work with you. What is that process from day one to, okay, now we can actually put furniture in and move in or, or, or use the structure? Like, wh- What is almost like the customer journey, if you will, that, that makes this so powerful for them? Yeah, so, so, so the first step, right, when you, when you want to build, you can, with, at no cost, go on our website, type in your address. This is, this is for Los Angeles, where we currently serve, and immediately know up to how big you can build. And, and Yeah, you, you, can, you can immediately know up to how big you can build and what you can build. So just by typing in your address and telling us what you want to build. So that's the first step, right? We just make it simple. Then once you say, okay, great, you know, sounds like a, I can build what I want, pay $250. And then we create three custom designs for you based on what you fill out in our digital design profile. And so that's, that's a series of 50 to 100 questions about what you're looking for. So, you know, what's your budget? How do you want to prioritize between the bedroom spaces and the living spaces? Uh, how do you want your home to relate to the neighboring structures in terms of privacy? You know, all the questions that a great architect would ask. So we do that. Uh, then you say, you know, I love this design. You put down a $20,000 deposit. We permit it. Once we get the permits, we manufacture it. We do the foundation work. We manufacture the panels from our factory. We ship the panels on a regular flatbed truck. We don't need, you know, an oversized permit. Um, so it's flat packed and then we install it on, on your property and we don't need massive cranes that, you know, uh, will if you have a tree or if you have power lines, those will get in the way. We just, you know, carry them, uh, with carts and then lift them into place. So, and that, 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 that install process today is a month. Got it. And so you're essentially taking the software process that technology companies have used forever in terms of uh, creating systems, being able to use technology to do a lot of work rather than have humans do it. Uh, and it drives all this efficiency. It also, uh, both from a time perspective and a cost perspective. Um, but what, let's go back to that example of like a two bedroom, two uh, bathroom uh, house or a structure that you guys would build. What that looks like is from an installation time period is a month. From a cost perspective, what does that look like compared to, let's say, a million-dollar uh, home in L.A.? Yeah, so, so you know, a two-bedroom, two-bathroom home, you know, we can do that for half a million dollars. But it's going to be the type of, which is, which is actually expensive. Like, in the, in the, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's at the level of quality that would cost you with conventional construction around a million. You know, we're talking about sub-zero wolf appliances, super high-end finishes everywhere. You know, it's like super clean design. Mm-hmm. So we're starting off with a high-end product. Um, 
and we're making it way easier and less expensive to buy that high-end product, but it is a, still a very high-end product. So I'm going to say something, which I don't know if is, uh, you're going to agree with or not, but uh, after we talked and I looked at what you guys were doing, um, I decided I was going to invest in the business. But the reason, I don't know if I ever told you this, was like, it seems like you're following the exact same model that a Tesla would follow, which is go to the high-end product, build a great product. It's expensive, but as you build that high-end model, you're basically using the luxury pricing to subsidize the creation of this entire system, the back-end, the team, the technology, et cetera. And over time, you can actually drive downstream in terms of you go from making half a million dollar homes to eventually, you know, I, I don't know what the goal 000. is, 100,000 or, or less. And there's still some level of quality that is associated that people would expect to be much more expensive. But now you're able to do that because you've got technology team training, uh, short time to install, like all these advantages that are going for you that you perfected at the high end of the market. But now you've kind of brought it down and almost democratized access to it to everybody else. Exactly. Okay, so exactly. very similar type of strategy that they followed, now just doing it with prefabricated homes. Yes. Okay, when we start to think about where you guys are today, you've already built some of these homes, you already have some of them on display in certain areas in LA. Uh, talk to me about what those homes have inside of them, right? So are they two bedroom, two bath on average? Like when I walk into one, is there like a pool out back and there's like a, a rooftop or is it kind of what I would expect with hardwood floors and, and uh, marble countertops? Like just describe what these homes kind of look and feel like. Yeah. So, so these, you know, these homes are clean design, large floor to ceiling windows, large windows, sliding doors everywhere. Um, you know, every bathroom is well lit, bright, um, spacious, we pay a lot of attention, a, a, a lot of attention to the small details, right? So, um, how materials feel, um, how they integrate with each other, um, and how do we eliminate visual clutter? So that a space that is actually relatively small, you know, say a thousand square feet, feels much bigger than it really is, because not all square feet are created equal. Right? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you, you can have a, a two thousand square foot home that feels like a thousand square foot home because it's poorly designed. Mm -hmm. And vice versa. And vice versa, which is what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. And why is it that your team is so effective at doing this, right? Like what, what background or what, what thing do you know that other people may not have figured out in the prefab home sector or just in construction in general? Yeah. I mean, we have a, we have an insane team. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a crazy team. Uh, these people have built, you know, they were at SpaceX, Tesla, top tier architecture and construction firms, you know, did the Apple campus structural engineering for the Apple campus in Cupertino, you know, all of these, all these different things. Um, and we're, we're pulling together this expertise from industries that haven't worked on this problem before. Mm -hmm. And we're putting them together on the same team and we're, and we're giving them a hard problem and they're solving it. Right. Um, you know, pe people that, yeah. Yeah. And those people come together, how much of the team is what I would consider technologist uh, in terms of they're either using some sort of uh, software or, or technology uh, platforms to do design and, and kind of cut down on a lot of the time or cost versus more of folks coming out of the construction industry where they're more architects or uh, actual you know installation teams, things like that. Yeah, the, the majority of the team is from uh, the, the, on the technologist side, so people that worked at like Google, Amazon, SpaceX, Tesla, and are, are you know 
manufacturing engineers, mechanical engineers, software engineers, and they're they're figuring out, you know, okay, here's the problem. How do we automate? How do we uh, design for manufacturability? How do, how do we design tooling that makes this scale really well? Why can't the incumbents do this? Like, it, what you're saying isn't, uh, not, nothing you're saying is like shockingly uh, abrasive, right? Okay, we get the time down, we get the cost down, right? We spend more time almost being thoughtful and thinking kind of from first principles, and then we build repeatable systems in order to uh, replicate this literally over and over and over again. And oh, by the way, we also happen to do some really uh, kind of what appear to be simple things, maybe I'm just naive. Uh, if you type in an address, we can quickly hit an API and say, here's what you're allowed to build in this area, here's what you're not allowed to build. Um, it feels like None of that is like crazy or uh, quote unquote rocket science, but nobody seems to be doing it. So like, what what is the uh, the difference there? Like, why you guys and, and not the incumbents? So I mean, yeah. It, as soon as I kind of understood the problem, I agree. It was it was like obvious, right? Like this was the solution. Um, I think for for someone that has been building homes for decades, right? The, which is what these incumbents have been doing. Thinking of a way to build a home without drywall, for example, is just they can't think of it, right? Mm -hmm. they, they're so stuck in uh, the conventional way of doing things. Um, and then the other the other thing is actually that most of these home builders, uh, especially the large ones, I mean, I mean, there's so let me step back a sec. There's your local general contractors, right? If, which if you're in LA and you're going to tear down and rebuild the house, that's who you're going to go to. They don't have the resources to do what we're doing, mm -hmm. right? We've we've raised venture capital dollars. We've put together an insane team. They just can't do that, right? You mm -hmm. can't do this with two people. It takes mm -hmm. a team. So, so they can't compete. And then when you look at the large home builders, um, you know, the, the, the build 10,000, 50,000 homes per year, they, they, um, they just, I mean, most of them aren't actually vertically integrated. Most of these large home builders are just working with other local general contractors mm -hmm. to do this. Mm -hmm. And they want to do this kind of innovation, but they, they don't have the technology, know-how, and mindset. Mm -hmm. And is it something where once you show them how to do it, they can replicate it? Or is this like a, a difference in DNA, right? Like I, I think a lot about um, in software, if you're building, I, I don't know, let's say a social uh, application, you could pretty much call up almost every other social media company and say, hey, guess what I'm doing and tell them. And they literally be like, all right, sounds cool, dude. I got to go. And they won't do anything about it. Right. Like, like yeah. there is this element of, um, you know, if you look at all of the, uh, the rise of ephemerality in social media, like somebody had to go do it, prove that it worked. And then everyone kind of was a fast follower and, and, and tried to copy it. If you look at things like newsfeed, right? Sure. Theoretically in hindsight makes a ton of sense. Somebody had to go do it and then it made sense. And, and so I think that like, it feels like what you're doing is very similar, which is almost the incumbents are in a little bit of like an innovation uh, or innovator's dilemma, right? Where like the innovation is so counter to the way they think, it would violate everything they believe to go and do this. And so that kind of boxes them out from, from really kind of attempting to compete today. Yeah, I, I think it, it yes. Yeah, it, it's hard for these incumbents to you know, they, they might understand it at an abstract level, what mm -hmm. we're doing, right? We're replacing um, broken, fragmented processes with vertically integrated process driven by technology. They, mm -hmm. they understand that, um, but they don't really know how to build that technology. Yeah. Because they don't have that in their DNA. They're not, um, 
they're not innovation oriented companies. They're, you know, execution and volume oriented companies. Mm -hmm. When you think about uh, your progress to date, how many people do you have? How much money have you raised? And like, what are the milestones where you're like, okay, from the day we started to where we are today, here's like the milestones that we kind of checked off along the way. Yeah. So, so we just raised a $60 million series B led by Gigafund. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had you know existing investors, Founders Fund, Valor, General Catalyst, Fifty Years, uh, and you, uh, you know, coming in. As far as like milestones, right? The first step was just developing a product, mm -hmm. right? And we did that with our seed round. We developed a product, we built a few of them for real customers. Mm -hmm. We got some real feedback, and we continuously improved, right? And then uh, with the Series A, which was led by Founders Fund and Lennar, actually, which is you know the largest home builder uh, in the country. So they co-led the Series A. With that, with those funds, we took our install time down from 120 days down to 30 days. So we tripled mm -hmm. the speed. Mm -hmm. um, so th those, those are some of the kind of like high-level milestones. We're, we're about 50 people now. Why is Lennar, the largest home builder in America, investing in a startup that no one knows about in the home industry, right? That is it out of fear? Is it out of uh, uh, learning? Is it out of economic gain? Like, what, what do you, talk to me about like why you think the philosophically this is interesting to them. I mean, I think you, you said it earlier as far as, you know, the innovator's dilemma, right? They, they see this problem in terms of, you know, home building hasn't changed in 100 years. There's got to be a more efficient way. They, they see the inefficiencies. They also see the labor problems, right? And this isn't, this isn't just Lennar. This is all the large homeowners, they're, they're facing an issue in terms of not being able to meet the demand for homes, right? There's a 5 million shortage of homes. They can't meet that demand because there isn't enough skilled labor out there that can build those homes. Mm -hmm. And so we solve that by taking a huge part of the process and moving it, moving it into the factory where you can put efficiency tooling um, automation behind it and make the process you know, faster. So we solve that core problem that home builders have. And then the $60 million that you just raised in the Series B, what are you going to do with that money? Like, where, where does that get you? A lot a lot more uh, R&D mm -hmm. and, and, and like not, you know, theoretical R&D. We're talking about building homes, testing them, uh, and, and getting them to be even faster, even more efficient uh, before we go and, you know, scale up and build a factory that can build 10,000 of these. Mm -hmm. And the idea is if we zoom out, let's say, 10 years from now, uh, I want to build uh, a structure, whether it's in my backyard or it's my entire house. I can come to you. I can answer my 50 to 100 questions. You basically spit out back to me, uh, hey, here's three potential things that we could build for you. I say, yep, I like option two. And in 30 days, I go from, all right, here's the foundation has been laid to uh, the actual property is ready to be moved in and, and inhabited or... Do we think we can get this down to 20 days, 15, two days? Like w w walk me through kind of where you ultimately think you can get it to. I think if we if we take out the regulatory constraints of zoning and permits, okay, I think we can get it to under a month for sure, probably around two weeks okay. total. And the regulatory approvals and all of that, is there a world where you all can make a dent in that in terms of uh, accelerating somebody getting uh, approved? I'm assuming, and again, uh, I'm somewhat naive and, and uh, ignorant when it comes to some of the, the zoning stuff in, in various cities, but if you're building the same 
size structure, right? You may change some bells and whistles or, or kind of what it looks like, but if you're essentially building maybe three types of the same thing, can you almost get the pre-approvals where it's, hey, if it's within the zip code and it's within this structure size, we already know it's it's just, yes, it's approved, it's approved, it's approved. Or is there still going to be a highly bureaucratic process where it's kind of one-off and somebody has to go out to the property or, or do something like that? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that we can do to simplify it, even even with custom designs. Um, we can we can get our system approved um, and work with the cities. It it really comes down to this, the local city governments were wanting to work with us and wanting to build homes because mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, it, you know it's it's a it's a local issue. So we can do that, and there aren't any kind of like first principles like core reasons we couldn't do that. It's not like they're doing months of you know, an engineering analysis on the permits. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're actually spending between two and four hours per permit, mm-hmm. right? So so even though it takes six months, they're not spending more than two, two to four hours on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is where we want to work with cities to solve their housing issues by making the process more efficient and working with software, maybe create, maybe creating an API that, that, you know, we can tap into on their end and all home builders can use uh, to get instant approval. I'm fascinated by this idea of private companies starting to put a dent in the bureaucracies of the kind of public uh, organizations and not from a, uh, we want to do your job for you, but from a, uh, this would make it easier for us and all of our peers and and competitors to work with you. And therefore we have the resources. You don't let us help and and build something. Um, A great example of this was recently uh, Flexport. uh, The CEO uh, went out on a boat in LA and basically identified, Hey, there are two, Two or three, you know, things that probably make sense in normal times uh, from a regulation standpoint. Uh, but if we were to change these, I think that we could drastically accelerate uh, kind of getting all of these ships into the ports, unloading them, and getting the supply chain kind of unscrewed up. Uh, and I'm willing to volunteer my time and my team's time to go ahead and, and help do this. And the regulations were things like uh, they have basically like shipping containers or Connex boxes that can only be stacked too high. And he's like, hey, we should stack them four or five high. Again, there's good reason why it's only too high during normal times. Right now, we probably should increase it. And he took to Twitter, so his team didn't even necessarily build any technology or do anything, but he was able to drastically create change by kind of bringing awareness to the issue. The second step of something like that is like to actually go build technology for them, right? It sounds like there's an opportunity, whether it's you or or somebody else in the industry, to say, hey, look, one of the ways that would be much easier for us to operate and kind of interface with you is through technology. Here is a thing that basically just take it for free so that we can kind of uh, uh, loosen up that bottleneck so that we can continue to move faster. It's going to lead to more affordable housing. More affordable housing solves a bunch of these social issues. And therefore, like, this is good for the government. And it's also good for kind of private industry. And so, like, let's go forward. Is that like a general thing that you think is possible? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What stops us from doing that right now? I mean, right now we're we're really trying to grow our, our software team and our engineering mm-hmm. team, and we're, we're focused on kind of like, you know, the problems immediately ahead of us. Mm-hmm. I see this as like certainly an issue down the road that we need to start working on now mm-hmm. uh, and building out that regulatory team and and, and just the, the team to engage with the city so that we won't spend months building this tool. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if you're a 2,000-person company, you can dedicate a team of 10 to go work on something. Absolutely. Right? We're a 50-person company. We can't do that yet, but we will in the future, and we'll start those conversations with cities so that when we have this tool, we know that it's going to be adopted by, you know, at least half a dozen or, you know, more cities. Mm-hmm. And... 
once you start to look at those roles that you're trying to fill, are there specific types of skill sets or experiences that you're looking at? You're like, right now I have open jobs. Here's the exact people that I'm looking for. Yeah, there's, there is, it's, 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 it's primarily engineers, although there's also a lot of operations, production staff, installs, but primarily engineers, uh, mechanical engineers uh, that have worked outside of construction. So in places like aerospace, automotive, um, software engineers, uh, and from, from a software engineering standpoint, it's you know people that can take here's a problem, develop a set of requirements, and and actually build the whole you know either microservice or feature themselves, you know, kind of deploy a test, get feedback, either if it's an internal product or an external product, you know, get feedback from the users and then go iterate kind of independently, right? So you're not, not going to have, uh, so we're looking for people that can operate without a team of, you know, product managers. Yep. Is everyone based in LA or you have people remotely as well? Uh, right now, everyone's based in LA. Okay. And is that something yeah. that you guys are going to continue to kind of focus on is bringing people to LA to make sure they all work together in one place? Yeah. It's, it's really important when you have such, such, such a big physical product. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. Talk to me about this idea of execution as marketing. I saw a tweet from you recently. Uh, you were, uh, from my understanding, leaving one of the cover structures uh, and there was somebody walking by who had no clue that you were affiliated with cover whatsoever. And they basically were like, wow, that house went up really fast. Uh, and in some way that's like marketing exactly what the value proposition is. Um, but you didn't spend any money to do it. It was just like people saw how quickly it went up. Like, how do you think about that in terms of virality and customer acquisition and, and kind of like spreading the word of mouth? Yeah. I mean, we, we would much rather spend the limited resources that we have on, on exactly that, which is execution. Right. And then having that do the talking for us from a marketing standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. um, people see what we're actually doing and they're impressed. Mm -hmm. That's what we wanted. That, that, that's what I meant by that. Mm -hmm. And when you do this, is there a belief that uh, the majority of customers, these will be their primary homes or this will be more kind of like second structures on their property, right? So remote work's becoming much bigger. Uh, I've seen a ton of people on the internet all saying like, hey, I need to build something in my backyard because I gotta get out of my house and yeah. I kind of feel like I'm going to the office. It just happens to be the office in the backyard. Like, how do you think that these structures end up serving people either from like a, a more full-time basis or more of like a office type thing on their property? Yeah, so, so today with the focus on backyard homes, uh, it's a mix, right? We have some people that are building them for personal use, right? So just like an office, a workout space, um, you know, that kind of thing. The other, the other use case is people actually renting them out to someone else or, or having a family member live in them. So a mother-in-law or, or, or a parent um, or parents living in the backyard with them, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of moving into a retirement home, for example. So that's that's a big use case. Uh, and then, and then the other option is actually for someone else to live in it and generate rental income and sub support their mortgage, right? You can build one of these and now all of a sudden, you know, living on your home is less expensive because mm -hmm. it'll pay for, you know, more than the cost of whatever the loan is to pay for, you know, the $250,000 backyard home. It'll generate more rent than, than the cost. Absolutely. That, that makes a ton of sense to me. And so when you think about building this, one of my big questions is always like, okay, cool. Sounds cool. Uh, you got a small little house. Like, why don't you live in one? But you do. <laughs> I do. So, <laughs> yeah. so explain a little bit about like the idea of you being, uh, you know, running this organization, but you literally live in one yourself and like why that's so important. Yeah. So, so I, I moved into one, it was two years ago. Uh, the, the homeowner was like, you know, they built it to generate rental income and then they asked us, 
do you know anyone that wants to rent it? And so, you know, I moved in, rented it from them because <laughs> uh, I was like, yeah, I want to test the product that we're building, right? I want to, I want to feel what it, what it's like to live in a cover, right? And see what works well and see what doesn't, right? And mm -hmm. improve it. Um, so, so worked there, I lived in there for about a year. Then unfortunately they sold the house. So I, I moved into, you know, a regular uh, apartment. Uh -huh. Um, and then I, we had another cover, cover client that came up and, and rented it. And so I moved into that one again. So I've now lived in two separate covers, um, and, and, uh, you know, seeing the difference and the improvements and, and where there's still room for improvement. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, it's been, it's, it's been it's been it's been really cool to actually you know it's you know a lot of companies have products where you can try them every day. Do you ever feel like um, you're just giving people feedback on how to make your own home better, right? Like, do you ever like message <laughs> the team and you're like, "Hey, man, this doorknob," or like, "Hey, this corner," and you're just just actually improving your own home, which ultimately will improve all of the uh, cover structures? Oh yeah, that's that's a huge that's a huge perk of living in your product is that constant feedback and it's like it's things that you would not notice if you just walk through it for 30 minutes or even an hour right it's like little things mm -hmm. i want to before we finish up kind of just look forward 10 15 20 years uh i will give you the benefit of the doubt that you're gonna be successful i'm quite literally financially betting on you being successful um what is the impact of cover being successful, right? Like to me, this is one of those companies where forget what you think about construction or uh, any other issue. You want to cheer for the company because if it's successful, there's all these like net good uh, uh, kind of impact to a local community. So how do you think about, okay, if we're successful, here's what changes in a, in a, a local economy. Yeah. I think, I think the, the first thing is just that we, we've raised the bar for the standard of, of homes, right? There's, homes are higher performing, they're more energy efficient, they're, you know, affordable, right? So, so we've just raised the bar. Um, and they're, they're stunning. Sorry, can, I'm, can I just read? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So the first thing is that we've raised the bar, right? Homes are stunning, they're high performing, they're energy efficient. And then the second, they're, they're more affordable, right? So homes are abundantly available. There's no shortage of homes. When there's a demand, if, if a, you know, a, a company opens up, a, a big company opens a headquarters in a new city, and now there's demand for 500,000 more homes, we can meet that demand within a couple of years, right? We've changed uh, that delay from the demand to the ability to produce homes. Uh, and as a result of that, we have a, a society and cities that are a lot more dynamic. You see a lot more change. Housing is, is not, you know, 50% of people's income. They have income to spend elsewhere. They have income to go on vacation, to go to college, to support, you know, their kids and their grandkids. And we've just created a lot more financial stability by making something so basic like housing, you know, uh, abundantly available and affordable. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the affordability of this is only going to become more and more of a conversation as uh, we get this kind of wealth divide in the country, right? And uh, and there's all kinds of monetary and fiscal policy nonsense that's going on, whatever. But everyone can come together and say having more affordable housing is a net positive. How we get there is in question, right? And how much uh, regulation should be in the way versus not, you know, highly debated. But Really, you guys kind of stand uh, outside of what I'd call the the kind of political disagreements, and you're just like, listen, you guys figure out what the rules all are. Like, we're just going to build affordable housing. <laughs> we're going to be really damn good at doing that. And when you guys want us to go in somewhere, like we can do it. We can do it fast. We can do it cheap. And ultimately, this is a net positive for your local community. So, like, 
you know, you kind of should be cheering for us to win here more so than uh, uh, trying to stop us from doing this. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, last question I have for you uh, is, have you talked to local politicians or, or anybody in terms of them uh, saying, hey, we want to actually make this successful? Like, we want to help you guys? Yeah, we have. We have. We've had uh, state senators come to our factory for, uh, you know, the, the zoning, the free zoning lookup tool launch. And we've engaged with, uh, you know, local uh, politicians and, and members of the city. Um, and, and there is support for what we're doing. Yeah. Where can people go to uh, look at the actual designs of the structures or learn more about the company? Yeah, they can, they can go to our website, buildcover.com. Okay. Um, and, and where can they find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter uh, or Instagram, uh, Alexis uh, X Rivas. Okay. And when people go there, right now you're only available in LA, but is there a plan or a timeline when you will move outside of LA or are we just sticking with LA for the moment? Right now, we're sticking to LA. Um, that's because we're focused on solving, you know, the whole process and the product first before scaling. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we're going to scale fast everywhere. Got it. I, uh, I'm really cheering for you to be successful. I think this is like a no-brainer, both from a, here's the mission of the company, but also too, again, I gotta just go back to, there's a, a very kind of deeply rooted first principles thinking that goes on here in terms of, okay, the problem that we're trying to solve actually isn't gonna get solved by just going faster doing what we're already doing. How do we build a scalable system that we can then replicate not only in one single geography like LA, but then if we wanna bring this national or international, how do we do that, right? Yeah, exactly, it's, it's kind of, putting in place the core parts and the core gears of the machine before you can turn the machine on and start pumping them out. Yeah. Um, all right. Go follow on Twitter, Alexis X Revis, uh, or Instagram and then buildcover.com. Uh, but I appreciate you coming in here and doing this. We're definitely gonna have to do this as you uh, continue to grow. I, I feel like this is not gonna be the last time we have this conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Pomp. Thanks for having me.